I'm also, you know, big supporter that women are funny. You know, I know men who say, oh, I don't find women comedians funny, but I've never felt that way. I mean, I, there's plenty. There's always been many, many funny women. Out of the silver shadows and into the click lights of movie land comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of classic era films. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site about movies from the classic age from all around the world. Did you know women could do slapstick comedy? No, but hum a few bars and I'll fake it. In this episode, I talked to silent comedy historian Steve Massa, whose new book Slapstick Divas throws open the film vaults to reveal hundreds of female comedians in comedy's golden age. And in my ongoing series previewing classic film festivals this summer and fall, I travel to Rome. Well, Rome, New York, home of Capital Fest in August. So as the ancient Romans would say, Veni, Vidi, clicky on the subscribe button at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, so you never miss an episode. One hundred years ago this summer, Charlie Chaplin was making The Immigrant, Roscoe Arbuckle had just taken on a new co-star named Buster Keaton, and everyone from Harold Lloyd to Stan Laurel to Charlie Chase was working on breaking into their ranks. You might think that everything there is to be said about silent comedy has been said by now. But Steve Massa wouldn't say that. A librarian in the Billy Rose Theater Collection at the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts at Lincoln Center, his 2013 book Lame Brains and Lunatics brought attention to dozens of half-remembered or not-remembered-at-all comics. Now he has a new book, looking at hundreds of underappreciated comics with one thing in common. They're all women. Slapstick Divas, The Women of Silent Comedy, now out from Bear Manor Media, reveals an entire, largely overlooked, distaff universe of comedians, and tells a history of early 20th century women through their pop culture reflections. I've been going through Slapstick Divas forever and ever here. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, well, it's pretty... It's, a, uh, it's large, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a substantial work, uh, for sure. I mean, I was trying to... I didn't even try to count them, but, I mean, there must be, like, 200 female comedians in this book uh, between, you know, once you get to, like, the the entries at the back that are basically reference entries. Well, there's, like, 400 and some of those. Four, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like mean, 470 of those, and then plus, you know, the women that are covered in the chapters. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an That's enormous number. Um, you know, and the number that are at all names that even people who are pretty up on silent film would know you know, is, is a tiny fraction of that, which maybe that's yeah. true of silent comedy in general. But uh, it did, how did how did this go unnoticed for so long? I suppose someone would say, well, it's because they're women, you know. Well, I dumb, think, you know, dumb guys. unfortunately, they think that is true to a certain extent. I mean, it seems like there's always kind of a boys club of silent comedy, you know. I mean, I mean, the people, people generally that are the most interested in silent comedy are men. Yeah, it's it seems like there's that whole comedy gene that they talk about where like women don't like slapstick, and of course that's a generalization because I know certain women who love it, but you know sort of overall, like I think the people that first really started writing about silent comedians were men, and they just seemed to gravitate towards the male comedians, and yet. They must have had popularity back in their day, so, I mean... They did, yeah. I mean, a lot of them spun off into their own series, like Alice Howell and Gail Henry and, and you know, Dorothy Gish and, and uh, 
Colleen Morrill, these people were really popular. And a number of them became major stars who are not necessarily comedy stars. I mean, no, they did everything. You know, I mean, Colleen Moore would do a dr- dramatic film, and then she would do a comedy, and she'd do another dramatic. But I think if you look at the overall arc of her her starring career after she became a big star, she did more comedies than anything. But she didn't just do comedy. You know, I, and neither did Dorothy Gish. And then Marion Davies. You know, she did those historical epics early in the early 20s. You know, I just got my copy from Ben of When Knighthood Was in Flower. You know, she did that. But then, you know, she did those great comedies like Show People and, and The Patsy, which I think she's more remembered for. Well, and I think there's uh, there's an interesting issue for sure about how women were portrayed. I mean, here's a new medium entirely, women deciding how they're going to be portrayed. Well, let's go back to the very beginning. Um, in your first chapter, uh, it's kind of funny. You point out that one of those things that all of us think is one of the very first films, which is The Kiss, is actually yeah. a moment from a stage comedy, although it doesn't come off as a comedic thing. Yeah, there's anyway. nothing, as far as we can see, there's nothing uh, comedic about it at all. It's from a play called The Widow Jones. Uh, with May Irwin, and I believe uh, John C. Rice is the gentleman who sort of parts his mustache you know, <laughs> when he kisses her. I always found that kind of creepy, but anyway. But, you know, it's, it's known, what it's known for is creating sort of the first censorship issues, because people, it was so intimate, and so, you know, on the, the people were sort of uh, offended by it to a certain extent. But it was from a comedy, and she was a well-known comedian on the stage. Right, and so in America, it seems like, yeah, they're kind of coming out of those, that sort of Americana theater of of back then. You also talk about a lot of European ones. Yeah, the European women. And again, their their background was stage, you know, whatever the British, whether it was music hall or, or French circuses or French theater, you know, Italian theater, most of them had stage backgrounds. It seemed a little more related to clowning, at least in like the French and Italian mm-hmm. ones, that they're kind of mm-hmm. coming more out of that world. Well, yeah, tell us about who are some of the early, early people who seem to have defined personalities at that point. Uh, well, there was, uh, oh, I'm trying to think now. Uh, well, there was the Italian Gigetta Morano, who was very popular. Um, and in, in, in France, there was Valentina Frescaroli, and she was the wife of... Um, Oh, Andre Deed, yes. And she p- appeared with him in a number of her films, and then she did some by herself, but they worked together for years. There was all, also one of my favorites was uh, Sarah Dumel, and she was kind of roly-poly, heavy-set, and she always played servants. She was kind of the comic servant. She was always the maid who was in trouble or, you know, causing problems. Uh, so there were, you know, there were a number of them who were very popular. Uh, there was another one called uh, Cunnagund, and we actually don't know who the actress was. Her name is, has not been recorded, but she played sort of a awkward, unattractive maid who was always in trouble. Again, they're often, and, the, and this was the case with the Americans, too, with the clowns, with, like, say, Alice Howard, Gail Henry. They were usually kind of like serving class, and I think that gave them a license to be kind of funny put upon that kind of thing well i thought that was interesting because you know we think of the movies as being pretty working class then in america an immigrant entertainment because it didn't require actually speaking english or reading yeah you Um, could just get the physical comedy you know translated on its own and yet at the same time there does seem to be a sort of class distinction built into comedy particularly with these women that the yeah. the comic women are almost always servants i mean you you know you talk of them being maids being slavies which i don't Lavies. think is, is even a word that you know ever gets used anymore we don't use, use anymore but it was yeah. yeah it was popular at the time well you know especially the 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 women that did physical comedy there's something that's considered unladylike about it. And that's where a lot of the comedy comes from. The comedy comes from them being unladylike. But it's interesting to me. I mean, I think a a feminist historian could find material to argue that where, like, Chaplin's Tramp is essentially this sort of free character, this free spirit mm. who can mm-hmm. go where he wants in the world, 
there's something a little condescending about these these servant girls with yeah. their, with their wildly mismatched clothing. They're often not very attractive. Sometimes when they're played by someone like Wallace Beery, they're really not a very attractive. <laughs> well, and then you know they don't understand social mores, so that's part of the comedy. You know, they they sort of go where they shouldn't go or do things that society doesn't want them to do, and so they, yeah, they are kind of condescended upon. Um, that's where a lot of the material comes from. Yeah. But I think, I think uh, you know, what you said is true about Chaplin being a free spirit, but these, these women are, are not, you know. I thought it was interesting, going back to the Europeans for a minute, um, that a number of them were the wives of the comedians, or they were paired with a comedian consistently. Which yeah, is, like uh, Nildi Baracci with... Uh, with Marcel Ro- Perez. Yeah, and, Robinette yeah. at the time, yep. eventually that we would all know as Marcel Perez. Right. Um, that, that, that kind of husband and wife thing, although we have the example of Mr. and Mrs. Sidney Drew, and I guess we have uh, John Bunny and Flora Finch, too. In the teens, then, I guess it exists in America, but you would be hard-pressed to say there's a lot of it later on. Well, there was Mr. and Mrs. Carter de Haven, and they started in the late teens and sort of bridged into the 1920s. But, yeah... You know, there were a lot of, at that early days, a husband husband and wife teams kind of thing, or pairing like that. Now, the one who seemed to, you know, really, really strong to me, and maybe it's just because I've actually seen uh, one of her films, The Florida Enchantment, as well as having seen, oh. her, seen her in things later on, because she has a character, she has a career as a character actress into the 30s, is Flora Finch. Oh, Flora Finch is great, yeah, she's marvelous and um, she did a lot you know she did all the films with bunny because they were known as a team but she did they did a lot with her on her own which i do talk about in the book uh and you know she was always playing spinsters or things like that but she never she never played the cliche you know she would always find interesting angles to kind of make some more dimensional characters yeah i mean i think of her as being kind of like margaret hamilton and the Wizard of Oz, which is yeah. a, a part that she could have played. She was still alive she could at that have played. point. Yeah, you know, she was very severe looking. Um, but I, you know, she's, she's always, there's a film that I like quite a bit called The Handbag. It's from like 1912, 1913, and she's sort of, again, playing the spinster, and she's on the trolley car, and she leaves her bag when she gets off, and a, a younger woman finds her bag. And, and holds it like she's going to try and find who it belongs with. But in the meantime, a young man gets on the train and sits next to the younger, very pretty woman with the bag. Well, when she leaves, she leaves Flora's bag. And he finds it, and he thinks it's the young woman's bag. And so he finds a card, so he's going to write to her, you know, he writes to her to give her back her bag and talks about her beauty, but of course the address he finds is Flora's. <laughs> so Flora gets the mash note. And she's all excited, and she's kissing, kissing the note and all this stuff, and she sets up a date for him to come, and he's expecting to see the you know, young pretty girl. And it turns out to be Flora, who's all flirty and chasing him around the room, and he's knocking over all the furniture to get away from her. And, but it's, it's a cute, you know, it's a very funny short. A situation which uh, we would all know from Tex Avery cartoons later, where uh, yes. the the older aunt of of the of Red Hot oh, Riding of Red Hot Riding would chasing the wolf around the penthouse. Yeah, right, right. Now I thought it was interesting. It kind of sounded like I mean, it's, although she was in charge of her career and produced a number of things, that she kind of got too smart for the room. I mean, you talk about like a a parody of Nazimova's uh, War Brides. And oh, right, like in her own series, yeah. That, yeah, that she seemed was... to have flopped maybe because people just weren't ready to maybe accept, was... accept that kind of meta-comedy almost. Yeah, uh, it may have been too sophisticated. Maybe they expected, you know, something a little more down-to-earth, which they had had. And she did finally, you know, most of her career was in uh, the New York area, you know, with Vitagraph, and then she did some of the independent productions. She supported Johnny Hines and some of his features in the early 20s. Everything was made in New York. But then uh, in the late 20s, she did go out to California, and then she appears in things like The Cat and the Canary. And uh, she had, you know, some a number of, of good supporting roles. But once sound came in, she was kind of relegated to... Very, very small parts. Yeah, well, is, and she's in City Lights. 
Yes, she's she has that wonderful begin in the opening, the woman, you know, introducing the statue, and she has a wonderful bit in Way Out West, uh, the Laurel and Hardy film at the very beginning. She's this woman looking for her husband, who's uh, in the group of of miners who are uh, listening to uh, James Finlayson's girlfriend do her big musical number. Uh, she has a very funny bit, um, and that's that's later in her career. Sure, I think she, she died in forty. 40, I think. I think 40, you said, yeah. Yeah, but uh, she was an excellent character actor. But I do think in the sound era, and this happened to Florence Turner and some of the other very early people, it was, it was like people thought of them as ancient relics, you know, from a, a whole different period. And they just kind of relegated them to doing background work. Let's get to someone who really is. I mean, if if there is a major female comic star of the teens, uh, and also really a kind of a major person in the film industry because she is one of the first female mm-hmm. directors of consequence it's mabel normand what was really interesting to me watching the sets of the early keystone and sna films as they were put out recently was and the, and the max senate sets and all of mm-hmm. that is like the idea of actually using a pretty girl in a comedy occurs fairly late in the day it seems to me chaplin always ends up being married to you know these sort of 55-year-old linebacker-sized women. Oh, Phyllis Allen or somebody like that. Yeah, Yeah. and it's like the idea of like, I mean, Senate's supposedly famous for bathing beauties, but it's sort of late in the day that you get someone who's actually, you know, sort of pretty and winsome like Mabel Normand in it. And not surprisingly, in that environment, she became a big star. Well, she's sort of, I, I, I feel, I mean, she's a pivotal figure because she's sort of the acorn that everybody else came from. I think all the women afterwards, because she's a clown and she's a leading lady at the same time, and she she would do both. You know, there's there's certain like Max Sennett shorts where she's just an out and out clown. She's doing all this heavy physical comedy, but then you know she did the features for Goldwyn. She did features for Sennett, where she, you know, they do they play more on the leading lady aspect. But she did both, and she, and there are films where she does both at the same time. So I think everybody that followed her either took the leading lady aspect or they took the clown aspect, but she she could do both. Uh, So she's kind of a protean figure, I think, in silent comedy. And also you get with her and and Fatty Arbuckle, I mean, you get get the really kind of the the beginnings of kind of situation comedy. Yes, it's true. I mean, they, they kind of took what Mr. and Mrs. Sidney Drew were doing which is very situational, but they added more slapstick to it, you know, and things like Fatty and Mabel Adrift and things like that, which have some very tender and touching moments, too, you know, where Roscoe uh, gives Mabel that shadow kiss. He kind of bends down and kisses her, and it's a shadow. Right. Um, things like that. Um, but they were still doing more slapstick uh, but even though it's slapstick, I mean, sometimes slapstick is just so destructive. Everyone is throwing bricks at everyone else. Oh, seems yeah. To have, seems to have murder in mind. And there's there's a, a kind of sweetness that in these recurring films between the two of them. With Fatty and Mabel, yeah, that series. You know, they really seem to care about each other. And, uh, you know, they're not doing things to each other. It's usually, they're usually, you know, like country lovers whose parents don't agree on their match so they have to sort of get away and go off and get to the minister you know so they can get married and things like that you know very a lot of country scenes and things like that you know in those films talk about her yeah kind of the progression of her career and her persona as you say she went into feature films and remained a a feature star for various studios for well yeah she was really of all the the silent comedians she was the first to make the leap to features um, you know, she beat Arbuckle, she beat Chaplin and Lloyd and those guys. I mean, you can say, you know, Chaplin's first feature was uh, Tilly's Punctured Romance, but he didn't continue making features. And, of course, Mabel was in Tilly's as well. But she was the one to, to make, consistently make the jump to only doing features when she started working for Goldwyn. I mean, they had made Mickey first, but Mickey didn't come out until she had already made three or four films for Goldwyn. Um, and they did put her in more polite comedies, uh, you know, because they, they thought features couldn't be all slapstick, you know, kind of thing. 
Now, so what do you think is the best example of that out of her work? I mean, I've seen some of the things like what happened to Rosa, where, you know, it's obvious she has health problems. And She's got health problems. She's like too thin in that film. I mean, yeah. she doesn't look well. And even in the extra girl, she doesn't look particularly well. I mean, of of the ones I've, that I've been able to see of the features, I think Mickey shows her off very well. And uh, Head Over Heels which was one that was found about 15 years ago. Uh, it's one of her Goldwins. Actually, it's the last Goldwyn film. Okay. And she plays an Italian girl, uh, part of a uh, acrobatic troupe that's brought to America, and they're going to try and make her a movie star. Uh, and, but she's very good in that. And by that time, Goldwyn kind of figured out that they have a polite comedy plot line, but they put in physical sequences. So they make use of both. You know the, that those twin talents right. occurred, um, which which to me is kind of I mean there's a lot of proto screwball comedy yes. in well, the silent era, and that's an example of it where you're basically you're doing a realistic comedy and then you take it to cartoonish ends occasionally to make it livelier. Well, the best example of that, as far as Mabel, closest thing I think she did to screwball comedy. Uh, is one of her Roach shorts, because the last films she made were for Hal Roach. And there's one directed by Leo McCary, uh, Should should husband, should Men Walk Home, <laughs> uh, from 1927. And it's a crook comedy. She and Creighton Hale are a crook, and they're trying to steal a, ju- steal a jewel at this big society party in the mansion. And it's great. It's it's one of her best. And it shows that she could do that kind of screwball comedy, you know, if her health had you know hadn't uh gone south uh right. and she had to retire and you know because she wasn't well and you can kind of see it sometimes in the roach comedies she, she doesn't look good and she gets kind of a confused look on her face sometimes like where am i yeah. um but she's very good in them you know and they're good little films actually but they're unfortunately they're not all that readily available i think the only one you can really see is raggedy rose uh, which has moments, but it's it's a little too long. You know, we start to get into people who will be familiar uh, in the 1920s because they continued right. as character performers. Um, and it's interesting that, that it, a sure way to get a career out of that was to not worry about appearing glamorous to oh, you know to do yourself up i mean like you mentioned louise fazenda now louise fazenda is actually fairly attractive she's got a little bit of a comic look to her but she but... is she was an attractive woman yeah and but she she does talk about in the trades and things she'll talk about the the sort of the extent she went to make herself unattractive and she didn't she didn't want like her friends would want to come and see her work and she 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 was very much aware that she didn't want them to come and see her looking like that you know even though they would see her on the screen but she yeah she had to make an effort you know to make herself unattractive and you know Polly Moran was the same thing uh, you know Marie Dressler you know take her in uh, she's not an attractive woman to begin with but in movies like Tilly's Punctured Romance she'd wear those those horrible circus tent dresses and things you know she she definitely go to comic extremes to make herself look to stand out more to look you know like the the comic sore thumb kind of thing these were roles for a lot of these people you know i mean i'm sure marjorie maine when she went out on the town wasn't acting like ma kettle you know but that's how we think of them right right all right let's well let's talk about some of these other other personalities sure um, i remember you know when i when i interviewed you about your other book uh we talked about mm-hmm. like alice howell um as i think was one of the female stars that you really liked. yeah she was and of course she's back in this book too yeah well tell me about her career well she again she came from the stage and she was doing musical comedies and uh her husband dick smith who became a director of comedies in the teens and 20s uh he had some kind of lung issue and the, they, the doctors told him he needed to go to a warm, dry climate. So they ended up going to California. And they had had some connection with Max Sennett before, like back in their days on the stage. But she ended up working, doing extra work at Keystone uh, in 1914. And it wasn't long before she kind of worked her way up to 
you know, uh, featured roles. She's got a nice role in Chaplin's Laughing Gas, and she's got little bits, you know, in some of the um, Arbuckle films and stuff. Well, in in the end of 1914, Henry Lehrman, you know, is setting up his LKO, Lehrman Knockout Comedy, and he did a raid of the Senate studio, and he took Hank Mann, and he tried to get Mabel, but Mabel wouldn't leave. So then he got Alice Howell, so she went over to LKO, and she was supporting the star, their star, Billy Ritchie, you know, who's best remembered as a Chaplin imitator. And little by little, she became very popular on her own, and they started featuring her in her own series and, you know, one reelers. And then Richie and Lehrman left LKO, and Stern Brothers, who were the brothers-in-law of Carl Lemley, uh, took over LKO and made her a star, made her their star, and they set up century comedies for her, you know, to star her. And so she... You know, she was their star. She left them, went to Real Craft and made short. She went back to Universal. Well, she retired by 1926. But w- one thing that's not that well known about her is she was the first generation of a family of Hollywood royalty because her daughter, Yvonne, married George Stevens, you know, the okay, big director. Sure. And then, of course, George Stevens Jr., who founded the American Film Institute, was Alice Howell's grandson. So it's a big Hollywood family, and she's the first generation. And she also, all those years that she was doing these comedy shorts, she put all her money into California real estate. Ah, one of those. She was very, that's why she retired around 1926. She didn't need to work anymore. And so I think the family may still have some real estate that she bought, you know, back in the teens or 20s. So she did very well. And, and George Stevens Jr., who I've had the opportunity to speak to, and he he said as a, as a child, as a kid, he didn't know that she had been in movies. She never talked about it. Well, that's interesting too. Is that uh, you know maybe because it was comedy and they saw it as low that it seems like that that seems yeah. to be a recurring thing that you just didn't uh, you know it that... didn't mean that much to them. It was a job, but you know comedy. As you were saying, being low, you know, if you think about the film industry, the comedies were always kind of on the, the low man on the totem pole. If you wanted to be really accepted as a, as a star, you had to aspire to dramatic features. Yeah. Well, and that's what a lot of the ones um, that you talk about, uh, kind of in the middle of the book, it's interesting to see how many just star stars like we were talking about Colleen Moore earlier Mm -hmm. started Mm -hmm. in kind of low comedy and worked their way up to you know grander roles I mean one obviously is Gloria Swanson but you talk about Betty Compson you talk about Olive Thomas yeah Uh, that's right that's right and and someone like Swanson you know she had those early years at Max Senate and uh, she claimed she left Senate when she found out that Senate had an idea to make her the next Mabel Norman and she decided she didn't want to be the next Mabel Norman, so she left. And, you know, she hooked up then with Cecil B. DeMille. And, uh, but she never came back to comedy, really. I mean, she did things like manhandled. But whereas somebody like Colleen Moore would alternate, you know, doing real comedy features like, you know, Ella Cinders or uh, right. Orchids of Ehrman. But then she would still do more dramatic things, too, to kind of, liven it up mix it up like lilac time or something like that at the same time though i mean i think of uh what's the demille film where swanson and bb daniels are fighting over thomas Meehan? uh, oh yeah that's um uh, the one where they get why change your husband or don't change your wife i forget yeah and you know and they have a full-fledged cat fight (laughs) you know there's we're not that far from max senate at that point well it's true and i mean she she could do comedy she's very good in manhandled she has that scene where she's on the subway, you're having a terrible time. You know, that's very, you know, that borders on slapstick, you know, being crushed and everything on the subway. So she could, you know, she definitely had comedy chops from her training. Yeah. But she, I, she aspired to more, you know, sure. loftier things. Well, that, and of course, show people is sort of a somewhat not so veiled parody of Swanson. Right. right. You know, that's supposedly her story of 
being Peggy Pepper, who becomes what is it, Patricia Papois? <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah, that whole yeah. thing. And so, and and if you you know, of course, Marion Davies is doing dress uh, Swanson through a good deal of it. You know, she's doing the teeth and the nose, kind of holding her her nose up and her teeth. You know, yeah. her lips over her teeth and stuff. So they were, you know, sort of elbowing Swanson a little bit, I think, yeah. at that point. Well, the other one that's interesting, too, is uh, that with Dorothy Gish and Constance Talbidge, uh, you get two comedians who sort of go that way because they've already got a sister in the heavy drama business. I mean, the story on um, Connie Talmadge is, you know, she was kind of the tag-along sister who kind of came, and they said she was always kind of clowning around. It was her personality. And people thought she was funny, and they put her in the films. Uh, and she just kind of kept doing the same thing. There's a there's a marvelous film that MoMA has a copy of, a Vitagraph, that both sisters are in. Uh, it's called The Peacemaker. It's from, oh, about 1914, 1915. And the, you know, the star is, is Norma with Antonio Moreno, but it's a light story about these these young people that are, you know, having relationship problems, and there's this older man who sort of counsels them. And it's kind of a sweet little situational comedy. And uh, Connie plays a friend of Norma's who's having her own problems with her boyfriend. But uh, it, it's funny to see them, you know, both in a film together. But Norma's definitely got the upper, you know, she's the star of the picture. Right. But Connie, I mean, you see her film, she's very natural. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's there's no artifice. She's just, she's very natural. And I think her performances are very modern. And the same thing for Dorothy Gish. The, of course, the problem with Dorothy Gish's films is most of them don't exist. And right. she did a but whole when... string of those features like uh, Flying Pat and all these things where they would put her into different, you know, she'd be an aviator. Uh, AVA tricks or you know things like that but oh, they're all missing unfortunately yeah she is always very natural very likable I very likable it's, it's easy she's to a... see why she was a star and I, I guess it kind of points to what we see evolving into the 20s is less and less of the grotesques and more sort yes. of girl next door types who have have some spunk and craziness to them I think that came you know after World War One and women became a little more independent. I think that followed in the films of those young women about town, like you were mentioning, you know, that these young, these young women who have a lot of pep and, you know, then, so they have some adventures kind of thing. Well, you know, that's, I think, that's interesting because it does kind of suggest that you could create more natural comic situations with women out and about. I mean, another thing that really struck me seeing the Keystone and SNA films, you know, in, in quantity is mm -hmm. just how many of the situations are about going to the park to try and pick up somebody's <laughs> nursemaid, you know, yep. some, some governess. Flirting with the nurses, nursemaids, yeah. while the uh, babies fall in the water and nobody's paying attention to them, you know. Yeah, and what does that say about society then? That, that, you know, that that's kind of a major preoccupation and, and one presumes it worked fairly often, you know. If it's well, a... but too, part of it is for the studio. It's cheap for them to go over to Echo Park and just have their comedians run around in the park too, you know. So it's sort of a handy situation, you know. Right, but, but it, it must is have... sort of like if, if all comedies from the 70s were set entirely in singles bars. I mean, it does does have this very sexual, societal reflection yeah. yeah aspect to it and and it just seems more normalized into situation comedy in the 20s that you know there's there's spunkiness but it's set in you know like department stores like my best girl or something yeah. like that well they're they're trying to achieve things they're doing things you know they're becoming independent women and that's that's you know what what the 20s films and as you said, it is less clownish. The, the, the female clowns are really popular in the teens, the starring clowns. And then they become more character players in the 20s, like Polly Moran was supporting in a, in a lot of those MGM features where she's the funny landlady or the, you know, uh, kind of thing, until they teamed her with Marie Dressler. And then you have these older character women, you know, uh, scenarios, which go on into the early talkies. Which I think is a really interesting series. I mean, I've watched a few of them, and I mean, it's rare that you see 
something from that period that's really aimed at sort of the older female audience. Yeah. You know, they're they're going in there with their feet hurting after being on them all day. <laughs> that's and they right. watch and they watch Marie Dressler give everybody in the movie what for. And it must have been hugely satisfying <laughs> to have yeah, that, I think that so. retro- representation on screen. Well Dressler, you know, of course had a very interesting film career too, with, you know, bursting forth on the screen until he's punctured romance and uh she wasn't the greatest businesswoman unfortunately yeah. Yeah. because you know she set up her own company and she was trying to put out these shorts and it was it got very haphazard you know they come out through world pictures or they'd come out through goldwyn or she she shopped them around and and then she had that very dry spell in the early 20s on stage and in films you know, Wasn't was, that because she was involved in um, was the White Rats the the later... yeah she was involved with the Chorus Girl uh, Union and uh, I think there were a lot of producers who you know kind didn't want to hire her and also she during the war she spent a lot of time uh, drumming up uh, you know for, uh, going around for Liberty Bonds so she kind of neglected her career you know for the war effort and then. After the war, she was trying to get back in it, and she, you know, because of the the chorus girl union thing, there were some hard feelings. And then also, she said all that was only offered her were sort of old timer shows, you know, yeah. like she was a relic. Um, so it wasn't really till the late twenties that she had that rebirth of film, you know. Uh, and then in the in the talkies, she really took off again. It's a shame because when she got that Oscar for Men and Bills, when her health suddenly just you know completely collapsed right so she didn't live long to enjoy it unfortunately yeah all right so really interesting chapter toward the end i thought was just talking about how many of the women besides mabel normand really had driven their own careers and most of this was new to me except maybe anita loose oh the writers and directors but i mean um i mean you talk about alice Blachet, obviously some some comedies coming out of you know her work she was a she was a very good comedy director and she had sort of a repertoire of performers um, if you see a number of these Solax comedies, and they do, their comedies are very similar to what was coming out of Vitagraph. I've always thought she just had a very a nice naturalistic feel for real life. Mm-hmm. That you know that she didn't feel the need to hype everything up as is so common then. Yeah, she didn't deal with the grotesque kind of. You know, and her dramas are like, you know, very naturalistic, too. Yeah. Or the house doesn't need to burn down by the end just so there's some drama in the picture. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Very interesting. I had no idea. Uh, you know, of course, Mr. and Mrs. Sidney Drew, everybody likes them as sort of the opposite of so much frantic comedy back then, this very sophisticated right. comedy. He died in 1919, I believe. Yeah. And then she, uh, originally Lucille McVeigh, goes on for some years to have a career, which I knew nothing about. I've never seen yeah, her solo work. It's really, her solo work has been neglected. Of course, the problem is most of it's it's almost missing. It's all missing. So it's, it's, I've seen a chunk of one of the um, After 30 shorts that she did that starred, uh, I believe his name was John Cumber, Cumberland, uh, who was sort of her replacement for Sydney. Uh-huh. He was a well-known stage comedian. And I saw maybe a minute on Nitrate of one, and that's all that, you know, she did five or six of these shorts that she directed and wrote. She appeared in one of them. Um, she did a feature, Cousin Kate, for Vitagraph in 1921, and she wrote some other things. And when Sidney, when Sidney Drew died, I think they, they owed two films to their, on their contract for Van Buren. And she finished those right away. You know, she just went on and wrote and directed them herself. And uh, there seemed to be more women writers yeah. You know, they seem like the industry seemed to let them do that instead of I, it seems to me that, you know, once the, the early industry was looser because I don't know, they, they they weren't sure that it would last and there wasn't 
how much money there was to be made in it. But once they realized it was going to be around and there was a lot of money to be made, I think the men started pushing the women out. Yeah. You know, they're going to take over. And then, you know, people like Falberg and Mayer made everything into a factory. You know, by the mid-20s, you know, the, the studio factories started taking over. Right. And But they seemed to be content. They seemed to think women were good as writers you know, coming up with ideas and, and, and doing the writing. So they seem to let them do that. All right, another one you talk about in that in that section is Gail Henry, and I know that's someone else that you've you've spoken about as, as a uh, comedic actress that you, that you like. Tell me about her. Well, she's great. I mean, she's sort of, you would, people think of her as the prototype for olive oil, because that's very much who she looked like. And uh, again... She had, you know, came from the stage, and she got into movies very early. She said uh, she had a friend that she had worked with who took her out to Universal one day, like in 1914, and she started working that day. They started using her immediately, and she became a regular in their series of Joker comedies that was sort of Universal's imitation of Keystone, you know, Mm -hmm. their version of the Keystone shorts. And she was working, uh, they had a kind of a rep company with Billy Franey, Max Asher, Milburn Morante, uh, another comedian named Lillian Peacock. And they were sort of the regulars. And they would practically, you know, they were making like a short a week, a one reeler. And again, uh, Universal doesn't have a very good uh, survival average. So a lot of the jokers, there's very few of them around. But the ones that exist are pretty good. And so she did those for a number of years, and then she, they started moving her over to other Universal brands like LKO, and then she left Universal 1919 and set up her own production company. It was called Model Comedies, and the director, sort of director general, was her husband, a guy named Bruno Becker, and he supervised the films, and she made about two years of, of her own starring shorts that came out through the bullseye. Uh, company and later Realcraft because Bullseye merged to become part of Realcraft. And after a couple of years, she like took a break. She stopped making the shorts, and she came back as sort of a supporting player. So she did a lot of features where she would do bits, and then she would be support in other people starring shorts. And that's usually where we see her today. Is she works a lot with Charlie Chase. And she's great in his film, uh, His Wooden Wedding. She's, she's very funny in that. She goes, steals the picture. Right. So she, she worked until about, mm, I think her last film was with Chase, 1933, Luncheon, Luncheon at 12 was her last film. But she got out of film because she had a dog that became very popular. Uh, she had a dog named Skippy, who's better known as Asta. Ah! Wow. And uh, she had already had a dog in the 20s named Buddy, who's in a lot of the Charlie Chase shorts. He's in a lot of the comedies, a very funny little dog. And the success they started, she and her husband started handling, you know, getting other dogs. And then they had Skippy, who became a dog star in the Thin Man series. And so she retired and they set up a whole kennel. They had all these movie dogs. And, of course, Skippy's also in The Awful Truth and um, Bringing Up Baby. So, you know, she just, I guess she, it seems like once sound came in, she kind of tapered off her performances. Like maybe she didn't enjoy making sound films. A lot of the performers say it wasn't as much fun. You had to memorize dialogue. It was a lot more regimented. So she kind of was already taking a back seat. And then I think the dog thing came up and she just, decided to do that now it seems like uh by this point i mean like you're saying before the the grotesques are pretty much gone um and you have a you, you talk about some of the stars who rose from comic parts to to being the major stars of the 1930s carol lombard myrna loy i also think of some of the some of the performers even you know more second tier who were in like the laurel and hardy shorts i mean you know may bush or thelma todd or whoever you know they're they've got maybe a comic edge to them but they're realistic they're not they're realistic yeah and of course they came to the fore in the 20s when things were getting more realistic 
you know, they weren't like the clowns, the grotesque, you know, and a lot of them started, like Lombard is more of a sort of pretty leading lady in those Senate comedies. But then in the 20s, you know, she's perfect with, with a kind of more screwball edge. And, uh, you know, Myrna Loy and Lupe Velez again. Right. And Lupe Velez was sort of a leading lady in a couple of the Griffith, uh, later Griffith dramas and things. And, you know, she's in The Gaucho with Douglas Fairbanks. And uh, she did, you know, her first film work was for Roach, was at the Roach studio. So, again, she did have, you know, a strong comedy background. And she did a lot of, you know, the Mexican Spitfire films and things. Yeah. And she got a little more clownish with with all the the language with all the malapropisms and things you know with her her spanish accent and things right so what what conclusions do we draw what uh with her with her women <laughs> in the cinema what conclusions do we draw about about this period i mean it seems a definite evolution uh of how women were portrayed in film they became more independent over time they you know they they could be comic characters in their own rights they weren't just props as they often were for i mean it's not like buster keaton ever had a really convincing relationship with an on-screen female they were usually yeah. props for him but and chaplin always had sort of the idealized you know and the provence or virginia Cheryl, who were kind of idealized uh and harold lloyd you know usually mildred davis or someone it's something you're trying to attain like an ideal kind of thing you know so they're more plot minds. devices than characters yeah you know in, in when it's a star male comedian yeah but in um, their own films like colleen moore and again she's sort of you know she's always sort of the the girl the young girl maybe you know a poor irish girl from maybe not the greatest side of the tracks you know who's trying to make it working in a department store or you know she's trying to work her way up and don't you because know, she ends up with the with the son of the the big boss you know or something yeah, yeah i mean that's in a lot of the mabel films too she usually ends up with her prince charming who of course just happens to be incredibly wealthy and you know <laughs> but yeah i mean we see I, I guess there's there's kind of a picture of women in the early 20th century to be to be gotten from the evolution of the the familiar comedy tropes in in women in that time. Yeah, they do. They go from you know the much more grotesque portrayals to uh, you know sort of more accurate, more sophisticated view independent women in the 20s. And I'm also you know big supporter that women are funny. You know, I know men who say, oh, I don't find women comedians funny, but I've never felt that way. I mean, I, there's plenty. There's always been many, many funny women. It, it's interesting because there's always someone like Amy Schumer, you know, becomes popular or Tina Fey. And, and the critics or the people who write about films say, well, finally, a funny woman. Right. But it's like, no, there's always been funny women. I mean, people always talk about Lucille Ball, but there's, there's always been plenty of, of you know, funny women, but they just don't get the same respect somehow. I don't know why. Well, now we have a great big book about them. So about the early women, uh, you know, I, I, I really wanted to try and be as inclusive as I could, you know, because so many of these women and especially the ones in the second half of the book, you know, the ones who were sort of the fiber of silent comedy sort of made up the universe you know, they would play the mean landladies or the mean children or, you know, which, which and you would see them in film to film. They would have little bits. They would have a moment or so and be funny. And you would see them in film to film, but they never got any kind of attention. Yeah. Well, so that was that was the plan to try and at least give a little nod to as many of these these women as possible. Slapstick Divas is out now from Bear Manor Media. I'll have links in the show post at nitrateville.com, and I'll also embed some videos of some of the stars and titles that we talked about, so you can see them for yourself. 
One thing that's interesting about the classic film festivals around the country is that they're mostly not in big cities. Instead, they make an attraction out of a classic American town and, sometimes, the old movie theater that was one of its hubs. That's the case with Rome, New York, a city of about 30,000 near Syracuse, Syracuse itself having been home until recently to one of the longest-running old movie conventions, Cinefest. When Rome hit hard times in the 70s and 80s, it made its 1928 Art Deco Theater, the capital, into a new civic center. And 14 years ago, it launched a classic film festival there, Capital Fest. I went to Capital Fest last August and was impressed by the vintage setting, the well-curated program, and the highly professional screenings, almost all in 35mm prints from major archives, with organ accompaniment for silence. Art Pierce manages the Capitol, and he told me how Rome used classic film to put itself on the map for cinephiles, and to attract the participation of top figures in the field. We had seen better days. We'd been an industrial town at one point. Uh, we had an uh, Air Force base. <clears throat> a lot of the industry left. The Air Force base has left, although there's something now that's kind of replacing it in the same area, an industrial park. The theater closed as a first-run movie theater in 1974 and reopened about 11 years later as a multi-use uh, civic center. Uh, in between, we were we were leased by um, a Cinema National group that had a small multiplex, two-screen multiplex, <laughs> multiplex in the of the of the 1970s, and um, we were leased by them, and, and they allowed the theater to be used for occasional live performances, but we were not open on a regular basis. And so I got involved as a um, as a volunteer uh, working on the organ, theater organ, because the organ has been here since 1928. That had fallen into disrepair, and I got involved with a group from Syracuse in um, working on the organ, uh, which was in itself was a little bit of a challenge because the, the the management at the time really didn't have a great interest in the organ. Uh, but you know we got it back going again, and it got to be used on a fairly regular basis before movies and things like that. And um, one of the board members at the time said, what would it take to bring a silent movie in here that we could use to accompany? And I said, I had no idea. Uh, at the time, Phil Serling of the um, Syracuse Cinephile Society was still with us, and he suggested getting Philip Carley involved to play the organ and, and, and working with the George Eastman House, which we did, and we, we showed uh, Cecil B. DeMille's The Godless Girl, and this was 2003, and got a good crowd. People came from a long ways away. And it, it kind of opened up, kind of, kind of opened our eyes to what we had here was something kind of unique. The fact that you know there weren't a lot of a lot of movie theaters, actual movie theaters from the period, showing silent movies and with with live theater organ accompaniment. So we we kind of we kind of built on that. We did silent movies once in a while, um, maybe every few months or so, and uh, that kind of led to the idea that. Um, we could do we could do a festival and get people from maybe a little further away than than our than our regular crowd. And actually, a friend of mine who's who's on the board now, Doug Swarthout, and I had gone to a lot of the festivals. Well, not a lot. We'd gone to Cinefest. We'd gone to Cinevent, and um, we liked the festival a lot, of course. But one of the things I think that was almost too it was they were almost too good, and that there were so many movies you wanted to see. So many movies I hadn't seen before, and it's just one movie after another. Sometimes from nine o'clock in the morning until after midnight, it just got to be a bit much. So we said, wouldn't it be nice if we did a festival, which was more leisurely and uh, allowed people to see everything we were showing if they wanted to, uh, without uh, without being really uh, uh, fatiguing. Although still and you would say wall to wall, you know, normal people would say that's movies all day anyway, if not quite as wall to wall as some of those festivals. Well, we, I think we recognized right off the bat that normal people, quote normal, unquote, people weren't going to go to the whole festival. <laughs> it's, it's not the kind of thing when you say to people, hey, we're going to show movies, uh, we're going to show like uh, eight movies over two days, you want to come? People aren't going to do that. Normal people in Rome, New York aren't going to do that. 
we did have people come, but the idea was we wanted to split it up so that if they didn't want to come to the whole thing, they could come and maybe see a double feature and a couple of shorts and, and at least, you know, share an experience. But uh, people from out of town were the ones coming for the whole thing. And that's, that's been the way it's ever since we started. Yeah, tell me about, this is the 15th year. Tell me about the festival this year. This Well, every year we, we for the last, well, I guess, 10 or 12 years, we've, we've done a, a tribute to a particular star. And um, this year we're doing Faye Ray. We'd like to pick, and we don't show all, like, it's not like we're showing all Faye Ray movies. We're just showing several movies that have Faye Ray as well as some other movies that don't have Faye Ray. But we like to focus on one particular star. I think from a programming perspective, it kind of helps to limit us because there's so much, there's so much stuff out there that hasn't been seen. It's nice to be able to focus on one particular person. And also, I think it encourages us to um, maybe dig up some things that have not been shown in a long time, whereas we might not be so aggressive about it if it, if it wasn't that it fit into our team. So this year, we're doing we're doing Feyre. Um, we'll be showing a bunch of her movies as, as well as uh, movies with uh, other stars. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Uh, I went last year, and the star was Gary Cooper, and it was really a chance to see a bunch of films that nobody sees. It, you could just tell that they were trying to cash in on the success of The Virginian because the titles were things like uh -huh. The Texan and A Man from uh -huh. Wyoming. And right. what it was interesting, too, was seeing how much he was really oriented to the ladies as a star at that point. They seemed much more women's pictures than you would expect from him as a star. So it was a really interesting perspective on his career. I, I think that's whenever you focus on one particular star, I, I do think you get, you notice things like that that you wouldn't notice if you just saw these movies individually over a period of a few years. So I think that's one of the, one of the good things about focusing on one particular person. It shows that you're really connected in with the uh, with the archives at a high level because you had people from the major archives doing presentations during the weekend as well. Uh, James Layton, who co-authored a book on early Technicolor, did a whole program of uh, clips from Technicolor, early Technicolor films, early Technicolor musicals. As someone who doesn't particularly mm -hmm. like early musicals, clips seemed a really good way to see them to me. Uh, and uh, George Willman also did a program on um, early kind of experimental sound films from the teens, which was really interesting to see this sort of disembodied early sound, very ghostly, I thought, uh, in a lot of ways. Yeah, we're, we're, we're very fortunate to have, to have the uh, cooperation of the archives. And like you said, Library of Congress has been great um, to us. And uh, James Layton is uh, Museum of Modern Art and... Uh, We've worked very well with them. They're providing a couple of movies for us this year, uh, including including uh, at least one movie that hasn't been seen probably since its original release. And, and you know they told us about that and suggested it. And that's 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 a it's a great thing to have that tie in with the archives because they can tell you what they're working on, what new movies they have. And I think the I think it's I think it's a good relationship because I think it allows them to see to have their their um, work. Um, shown off in, a, in a, a good venue because, you know, you, I mean, not, not to brag, but I don't think you can beat seeing a 20s movie in a, in a 20s movie palace with a, a 20s theater organ accompanying it. I think that's the way these movies um, play best, and I think that's one of the things the archives like about us is that we're able to exhibit them in the, in the way they were shown when they were new. And, you know, honestly, um, a lot of places aren't able to do that. I mean, we're fortunate that we can. We're fortunate we still have our, our theater organ from 1928. And we still have our 1928 theater, and we use carbon arc projection, so we can we can show these movies like they were shown originally, and, and that's that's something. It's it's almost accidental that we're able to do that, but I think we are committed to taking advantage of of that situation. We we are a film festival, and so we we make it a point of showing things on film. Uh, the, here in the digital age, it is. It is a circumstance of the period and that there are things available digitally that we cannot get on film. So we have made some decisions to show some things digitally since the op other option would be not showing them at all. So we will be doing some things digitally. We are adding uh, uh, a new uh, very expensive uh, 4K uh, digital uh, projector uh, in the booth, and it will allow us to show some things 
well, for example, um, well, some of the things in the archives even uh, that we we just couldn't show because they they don't have the the funding or the or the time or the staff to put together a a full 35 millimeter restoration at this point, but they can do a digital scan, so that allows us to show some things we couldn't otherwise show. We're getting some short subjects in Universal uh, that they do not have films on, but they do have digital, and they're from 1930 and 1933. So that's you know we we got the digital in part so we could show new movies at the Capitol, newer movies at the Capitol on occasion. But for the most part, we are using the digital so we can show archival movies, older movies. The idea is that now we can show anything made between 1893 and, and last week. <laughs> with a, with, we're more likely to show the movies from 1893 than we are the ones from last week. Capital Fest takes place August 11th through 13th. Information and the almost complete program is up at RomeCapital.com. There will also be links in the show post at Nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests Steve Massa and Art Pierce. Music is by Kevin McLeod. In the next Nitrateville Radio, I'll talk to Ben Modell, who tickles the ivories for silence at the Museum of Modern Art. We'll talk about that, and also about how Ben and others are using the internet to produce and market professional-level home video releases of long-unseen silent films, with stars from Marion Davies to Marcel Perez. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher and leave us a comment and a star rating at iTunes. Thanks.